Welcome to Project VetCast's 17th episode, and thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I'm going to continue to talk about success, but I'm going to cover what it takes to make an idea a successful project or business. If you remember in the last episode, I talked about thinking of a way to change a problem you see in the world and making it a piece of reality. It's what separates the daydreamers from the doers in our world. For the interview portion, I got to interview Aaron Quinones, a Marine Corps vet and a guy that started Q Actual. Guys, Aaron surprised me during our interview. He doesn't have a degree at all, at least yet. But the things he's done, he's done a lot of research for. Kind of like you would do research in college. Now, I'm not talking about the articles you or I would read. This dude went into medical journals and complicated papers and studied until he understood them. I did something like that when I first started my TikTok account. <laughs> I was fed up with all the news outlets in 2021 during COVID. So I took a paper I found from Google scholars that explained COVID virus and different vaccines and how they worked. They even broke them down. Um, only Aaron created an actual application that people use today from doing all the research he did. So now towards the end, I'm going to cover another hobby. Now, guys, I found an interesting list of hobbies. So let's see what, uh, what weird and fascinating things I end up talking about. When talking about a successful dream, there, there are a couple things that any successful dream project or business needs to survive. Someone with a plan, someone with money and someone with energy. Now, all three things could come from the same person or they can come from a few people. But first, someone has to have the plan, the idea, the direction when people get lost. It's what I was referring to in my past episode. You know, what if you were making your ideas a reality? Our world is led by those with the plans. What separates those with the plans from those with the dreams? Those with the plans aren't just daydreamers who sit around and dream of a different world and call it a day. They dream or imagine, and then they take action. They aren't worried necessarily about what other people think. They just see their plan working. They see the final picture, the blueprints. Next, someone has to have money. The money has to come from somewhere. Whether you're good at taking the money somebody else gives you and you can turn it into gold, or you had to save up or even wait for retirement. The dollar is currently still the accepted fiat currency that works with banks, customers, and everyone else. And money is needed to make a project or business or idea successful. Now, third, you might not believe it, but the first two that I just talked about aren't actually the hardest part. Energy is the hardest part of the entire process. Something you believe in that gives you energy. Something you can convince others to believe in that gives them energy. You lose your energy or the energy a project or business has, and you can say bye to that idea and watch it disappear. Unless you work really hard to re-energize it. If you gain a ton of energy and keep the momentum going in a business, you've got a business or a brand that has success. 
How much energy do you need, though? Just enough to get your idea going. And then after that, just enough to keep it going. The cool part about it, once you have a successful idea, the rest is history. Just keep it going. What's the terrible part? You may fail and fail hard a lot. It took Edison or Tesla, whichever side you believe, 1,000 attempts to create the light bulb, but he got it right once. Now, like I said in my past episode, I'd rather fail over and over again trying to figure it all out and trying to live an interesting life than to just keep checking boxes and being comfortable. Failure and pain are not fun to experience, but they are excellent teachers. Just listen to my entrepreneurial experience and tell me what you think. My first business was called I Want Accessories. I started it in 2019 after watching, after being part of some quick seminar or video um, about dropshipping and how easy it was and how much money you can make. And, you know, I'm sure there are people out there making a lot of money off of dropshipping. I started with iPhone cases. I even made the I in I Want Accessories small, like the iPhone word. Seems simple enough. And then I branched out into Android cases, not because I was selling anything, but I figured, hey, more products is more chance of a sale. What was my sales pitch? Buy a phone case for $20 and save yourself $200 when your phone fails and doesn't break. Save yourself the time of dealing with insurance or paying for a new phone. Guess how many sales I had? Three. Two of them were cases I bought for me and my wife. And one was my brother-in-law who was happy to support me. And I still appreciate him for that to this day. But he received a broken phone case in the mail. I felt so bad about that. I bought him a brand new phone case from another company. Business number one. My second business. And what led me to start Project Vetcast was Fighting Chance Apparel. My brother and I started Fighting Chance Apparel together because we wanted to do something about veteran suicide. We did great when we launched. $1,800 in sales and pre-launch. We took the money, paid for the initial order of shirts, and then you know shipping costs. We invested in more of the initial shirts and started to make new shirts based off our ideas. We had a team. We had energy. We started out really well. Eventually, though, between our business model and our team, we lost the momentum. Business number two. So now, idea number three, I'm doing Project Vetcast. Third time's a charm, right? <laughs> now, I don't get paid to do this, but I'm really not concerned about the money. I'm really enjoying podcasting and interviewing other veterans. It's also become kind of therapeutic. I've been able to talk about some things I've experienced in the past, get them off my chest. But the ideas I've gotten for topics cause me to do research and understand what I'm talking about to the best of my ability. For example, I didn't know anything about hormones in the body, but I talked about them. I talked about the happy hormones, the negative hormones. Uh, <laughs> and like I mentioned, the interviews are a lot of fun. They're giving me a different perspective about the veteran community than I had before. You want to talk about energy? Right now, four months into the first two ideas, I'd be questioning what I'm not figuring out and what I have to do 
to make the business successful, to make the idea successful. Now, four months into Project Vetcast, on the days I think about not doing this anymore, I'm reminded that people actually listen to Project Vetcast. Since the first episode in November, people have listened to the episodes a total of 109 times. And I went from an average audience of three in the first two months to tripling it to nine now. Those numbers might not seem like a lot to you, but for me, they're huge. Project Vetcast on YouTube has managed 104 views and now has eight subscribers. Never thought I'd do something like that on YouTube. As I shared on the page last night, people listen to Project Vetcast in eight different countries. Although, whoever you are in Bangladesh, I don't know how you heard about Project Vetcast, but let's talk. I want to hear the story. <laughs> I get tagged in posts from people I've interviewed and get to see the neat things they're doing. This month and next, I'm trying to raise money for the nonprofit, excuse me, the nonprofit Reverent Warriors that I interviewed in episode 14 and potentially another nonprofit, but I would have never thought about doing that had I not interviewed them. Do you hear the difference between idea one, two, and three? I'm excited to talk about Project Vetcast. I've got the energy and momentum I was talking about earlier. Your idea might require a ton of effort where you're working, like Grant Cardone, and you're doing 10 times the work your competitors are doing. Or your idea requires very little effort. Energy and passion is usually 60 to 80% of a project, because it doesn't matter how much money you pour into a project, projects or companies bleed money all day. Your idea could be the dumbest thing on this rock we call planet Earth. But if you can convince people to spend their energy on your idea and make it work, it still works in the end. So I guess my message for any veterans and anybody else listening, if you're going to start a business, I mean, learn it from my stories, my lessons, uh, make sure you're passionate about it. If you're not sure where to start, find a community you belong to and figure out your purpose. Now, I'd go more into detail, but I also talked about that last episode. So go check out episode 16. Now, for the moment we've all been waiting for, even me, and I did this interview. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, guys, Aaron's a great dude with a great story. So let's get into it. Hey guys, what's going on? Um, I've got with me Aaron here, who I really wish I could like introduce him over one specific topic, but he's got so much going on and such a cool story. I'm just going to let him talk about it. What's up, man? Right on. Hey, thanks Ian for having me on the show. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come and, and share with your audience here uh, what we're doing around mental health. So thanks a lot for uh, for inviting me on. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It's, it's an honor to have you on. Um, what encouraged you to join the military? So for me, I grew up in a small little mountain town in Northern California. Uh, graduating class in 1997 was seven students. Okay. So it's middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, for some of you guys, you probably heard of uh, Humboldt County or maybe Trinity County or the Emerald Triangle. 
it's basically where all the marijuana was being grown uh, when I was a kid. So I've, I've watched that industry go from the wild west to main street uh, in my lifetime. So my parents, <laughs> yeah, my parents were marijuana farmers. Uh, and so I grew up in that lifestyle in the drug trade. And there was a lot of, you know, violence and abuse and craziness that went on in that uh, in that community because it was an outlaw community. And so, you know, I grew up really tough and really hard and uh, spent some time homeless as a kid. And we were really, really poor. I mean, the kind of poor that uh, you knew you were poor. So like on recess uh, in, in grade school, I would stay in the library and I would just read magazines like um, – you know, National Geographic, and I'd see all these really cool places that I knew I was never going to get to go to, you know, like the pyramids uh, in, in South America and, you know, the pyramids in Cambodia for Angkor Wat, the Maasai people in Africa. And I just, I knew I wasn't going to get to go to those places. So when I learned about the military, growing up, I didn't know anything about the military at all. Like it just wasn't talked about, uh, except for like Rambo movies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I went, um, I went to high school in Coos Bay, Oregon. So we were homeless and my mom got us out of homelessness and moved us up to Oregon. And that's where I went to high school. And that's where I learned about the military. And I was like, this is my way out. Like I can go leave this area and see the world. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't really know anything about the branches of the military either, like the differences or anything. Uh, I just knew whatever the toughest branch was like, that's what I wanted to be a part of, <laughs> you know? And of course it's the Marines, right? So I joined the Marines and uh, you know, it was, it was great. You know, in my, I went through boot camp uh, with a good buddy of mine and he went in the infantry I went into communications because I wanted to be able to have flexibility in my career because gotcha. every, every unit rates a communicator, right? So I could go anywhere. So in my MOS school, I had a Sergeant, uh, his name was Sergeant love, <laughs> very unfortunate <laughs> name for, for a Marine, right? It's L U V. But, uh, you know, he pulled me aside one day and says, Hey Q, you're sharp, man. Um, you, are you afraid of heights? And I was like, Nah, I'm not afraid of heights at all. He said, all right, well, uh, you want to jump out of airplanes? I said, heck yeah, I want to jump out of airplanes. <laughs> he said, all right, uh, I'm from this unit called Anglico, and uh, that's what we do. We jump out of airplanes, and we do call for fire. And so uh, I'm going to make some calls and, and see if I can't get you an interview with these guys. And he did. And I next thing I know, I get out of my school, and I, I go to Anglico, go through the Anglico basic course, and I passed it. Uh, and I saw a lot of guys struggle with like land nav because you got to be like hot on land nav. And, and my brain, I just I was naturally gifted at land nav. So, yeah, I did really good uh, in the Marine Corps. I became a master parachutist. I became a close combat instructor, naval weapons security manager. I got to do a bunch of fun stuff uh, when I was cool. in the military. Yeah, a lot of guys uh, that I went to school with, they, they went to 9th Com Battalion and they just kind of stayed there their whole career. And for me, I was like, I got to do all these cool schools. I got to train with the army and the rock Marines, um, and do a lot of travel. And so it was great. I, I loved it. That's I, I, yeah. Just thinking about all that and almost makes me want to go back and join the Marine Corps and go through your experience. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you in the Marine Corps for? Uh, I did eight years and my last year was actually in Iraq in 2003. So I, I volunteered uh, to deploy to Iraq and they attached me to the six engineers out of Portland. Okay. And so I spent my combat time with them. Um, and honestly, I, my combat time was very minimal, especially when I compare it to like a lot of the guys that I work with now. Oh yeah, I had a relatively easy deployment. 
But when I came back, man, I was struggling with mental health and I did not understand it at all. I was like, why am I having nightmares? I can't sleep. I feel like I'm constantly on edge. I've got all this anxiety for no reason. I feel like I'm constantly under threat. Like it got so bad where I was having OCD problems where I would come home and I would try and just sit on my couch, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't do it. I couldn't just sit there because I felt like there was somebody in my apartment. So I would have to clear my entire apartment. And I'm talking ridiculous stuff, dude, like opening the bathroom cabinets. Like who the heck is going to be tucked in a bathroom cabinet? But I would sit there on the couch and tell myself, you're not going to check the bathroom cabinet. And it would feel like I was sitting on a hot coal. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go check. And I check it and I feel better. But I'd have to do that. And so I had all these safety behaviors and it just, it, it got to be too, too much, man. I wasn't managing mental health. Well, I went to the VA mm-hmm. and honestly, that was no help at all. Um, Which VA did you go to? The, the one here in the Puget Sound in, in okay. Seattle. And all they did, I mean, nice guys, but all they did was, was give me medication and they over medicated me, which made things worse for me. Yeah. And you know, I'm mixing that with alcohol <laughs> and, and, and not for fun <laughs> just so I could sleep. I, I, I figured out that if I drank enough, I could just pass out and get a few hours of sleep. And that's yeah. literally what I was doing. So people are like, Oh, you want to go out and party? I'm like, no dude. Like I drink so I can fall asleep. Like that's what I do. That's a different way to look at it. Dude, it was, it was not an enjoyable experience. It was just to try and get some sleep, but my mental health deteriorated. It caused my marriage to end. Um, you know, I lost my job and my apartment. And the next thing I knew, bro, I'm sleeping in my car, um, trying to find work wherever I could. And it was, it was so humbling to go from being this top tier operator to can't hold down a job, uh, can't interact with people. I'm living in my car and out in the woods. Like it was, I was like, how did I get here? This is horrible. Like what happened? I was one of those guys that fell through the cracks and there's a lot of guys that did that. And, and the VA um, was a huge part of that mess for me. So I have no love for the VA. I know it's changed a lot um, in the last decade, but man, it, they're the main reason that I ended up homeless because here's what happened. I did not have a uh, disability rating. So I'm going yeah. to the VA and I'm trying to get help and they're sending me a freaking bill every month, dude. And I'm like, I am not paying for this. There's no way I'm paying for this. They said, well, you don't have a disability rating, so you got to pay out of pocket. So I'm trying to figure out how to get a disability rating and there's nobody helping me. I end up um, getting all these bills. I'm like, I'm not paying this stuff. Well, end of the year comes and guess what? You do your taxes. Yeah. You do tax refund. Refund. But old Uncle Sam said, no, you owe us for this VA stuff you've been getting. So they took my whole freaking refund. And uh, next thing I know, I'm on the streets, man. And so, like I said, I, I don't got a whole lot of love for the VA. I know it's changed. <clears throat> but for me, I just try to avoid it. I'm learning through these interviews that there are some veterans like, interviewing, di- inter- excuse me, interviewing veterans in different areas. I'm learning like I'm able to help people figure out, hey, this uh, VA does really well in this area or Hey, people are not having success with this VA. So like kind of able to tell people like, it doesn't sound like, you know, I really want to tell people to go to Puget sound uh, VA just cause it doesn't <laughs> sound like a great place to go. So, so check this out, dude. Here's a fun fact, right? And, and yeah. I'm not crazy guys. You guys can look this stuff up. You know, <laughs> you know Timothy McVeigh, right? Blew up the federal building. Yeah. Right, right. Right. So Timothy McVeigh was army veteran desert storm. 
and he was trying to get help at the VA and he, he wasn't getting any help. And then the dude drives a truck in and blows up the federal building and they just label them as, Oh, is this crazy guy? But I, I get it, man. That. Like this dude was so frustrated. They pushed this guy to the edge. I'm not justifying what he did. Okay. Don't no. get me wrong. I'm not justifying it, but I understand it, dude, because I didn't know. They, yeah. 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 And so th- of course they bury that. They don't want people, but you can look it up, dude. It's out there. It's public knowledge that he had a long history with the VA trying to get help, asking for help. He had Gulf war syndrome, but they weren't, um, he was diagnosed, but there was no rating for that because they were denying anything happened. And, um, I mean, they pushed that guy to the edge, dude. I mean, that guy, right. Like he, he went way over the edge and like I said, I'm not justifying it, but I understand it. <laughs> like I've, I've been through that meat grinder, uh, of the VA and it ain't fun. And there's nobody to help you. Now they have advocates and there's yeah. people you can talk to. But when I was going through, <clears throat> there was none of that. You know, I didn't tell you my only experience with the VA is through the GI Bill. And uh, I'm a reservist. So like I was taking uh, the GI Bill and using it for my college. And so I was getting BAH and I went and drilled yep. with my unit for two weeks. And I picked up some orders and they were like, I was like, hey, don't send me any more BAH. And they're like, oh, just tell us about it afterwards. We'll, you know, we'll just hold on to it. We'll take it back from you later. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm trying to stop you. And then they send me a bigger bill than what I was expecting. I was like, what the heck guys? And they're like, oh, well you drilled for two weeks. So now we need this money. I was like, all right, so how am I supposed to pay this back? It's like, oh, well, when you get VA the next time and you need BAH, we're just going to take it out of that. I was like, but I'm on orders. So I'm probably going to be able to finish my degree on these orders and I won't need BH. Well, well, you'll just have to pay us back in monthly installments. I was like, hold on a second here. You're telling me if I actually needed BH, you were just going to take it from me? Uh, yeah. Yep. That's ah. how the system works, dude. They just grind you, you know? It's bizarre. Um, so how did you go from uh, homeless? And I think before you mentioned suicidal as well. Um, how... How long were you homeless and suicidal for? You know, I was homeless on and off for about a year. Uh, you know, I'd get, I'd be able to stay with some friends or family, or I'd pick up a job and, and get get a little money so I could get into an apartment, but it wouldn't last yeah. long. So it took me, it was about a year that I was going in and out of that, you know, living in my car, trying to do what I could to, to make it. And I was not managing mental health and that was a huge problem. And I got yeah. to the point where I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, I had some really good jobs for a long time, uh, but they would always deteriorate, right? Because I wasn't managing mental health. Yeah. And the thing about it is even when I was managing it, I wasn't managing it well. Yeah. And the minute you have another stressor or another trauma enter into your life, it compounds that and everything just crashes down. And so mm-hmm. that's what happened to me. Uh, December 22nd of 2007, um, there was a, a convicted felon who was armed, broke into my house. And he he broke into my house and he was robbing my house when I came home. So I come home, he's in my house. I draw my firearm and I put him down before he can pull his firearm. And so again, another trauma. Yeah. And I had to go through the police and all that stuff. And, you know, they determined like, yeah, this is a clean shoot. But mentally it just wrecked me because all of that stuff that I had been burying down with work and relationships and alcohol that I wasn't dealing with 
all of that stuff came back out and it just flooded me. And it took me about six months, four, four to six months to go from having a good job as a sales manager of a car dealership to being homeless and suicidal again. And so I, I remember, uh, I was just kind of at the end of my rope and it was, it was the 4th of July and hadn't slept in a few days. And I was really just stressed out and had this like brain fog. And I was just done, man. I was just tired of being tired and in pain. And what people don't realize is when you're going through a mental health crisis, like it is physically painful. Like my body would hurt. My oh, brain yeah. would hurt. The brain has no nerve endings. So there's no way that my brain should feel pain, but it was feeling pain. It was incredible. Um, and so anyway, I, I was driving around trying to find a quiet place to just end my life. And I remember I drove into this really big vacant parking lot. And uh, there's a big green belt behind it. And I drove right up to this building and I backed in along the side of it. And I figured I'm just going to end my life right here. You know, this quiet little parking lot. And so I rolled down the window because it's a little hot in, um, in, uh, in July in the Pacific Northwest. And so yeah. a little bit of breeze on me. And uh, mm-hmm. when I did that, I could hear these kids playing in the playground um, not too far away. And I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to wait until these kids take off. So that way I don't, uh, you know, mess up their lives. And so I waited and waited and waited. And then the next thing I knew I woke up and when I woke up, those suicidal ideations were gone. So I put my pistol away and I just carried on with my day. Well, a few days later, I got invited to go to church by a friend of mine and (laughs) he, uh, he'd been bugging me and I was like, all right, man, I'll go. Uh, Or no, I told him, no, I told him I wouldn't go. I said, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm not interested. Uh, that Sunday I woke up a little hungover and I was like, ah, what the heck? I'll go check out this church thing. And so I did, I went to the address he gave me Hmm. and I drove right back into that same parking lot that I'd almost ended my life in just a few days before. What? Dude, it was so creepy. I'm like, what is happening right now? Like, am I in the twilight zone? Like, I mean, like I'm having mental health issues and now this is happening and I'm going, what in the matrix is going on around here? Right. That's so bizarre. Bro, I just roll in. I'm like, oh, what's happening? So I get out. This surreal experience. I'm like, all right, I don't know about this whole God thing, but this is a strange coincidence. I got to figure this out. Yeah. I went and I listened to the pastor. He was doing this series on feeling lost. And I'm like, that's me. Like everything he's talking about, like that's everything I'm dealing with, which is even crazier because now I'm like, okay, like, is this the Truman show? Like (laughs) what's going on? That's an old school reference for you guys. If you don't know what the Truman Show is, (laughs) go look it up. But I'm like, what is happening? So I go, uh, I listen to the pastor and, uh, you know, he gives the altar call a few weeks later. And I'm like, yeah, that's me, man. Like I gave my life to the Lord. I'm like, perfect. Everything's going to be good to go. Uh, All this stuff is, all these burdens, you know, are going to be gone. And so I I went up, did the altar call. Nothing changed for me, dude. Like still dealing with all the anxiety everything i'm like well that didn't work like what the heck like i thought that's how this thing worked i was like all right well that didn't work so what can i do i said i need to learn as much as i can about this this bible like i need to get one of these things and start reading it which didn't help either because i did not understand it dude like it is written in a completely different language referencing things that had no idea what they were and so they talked about, well, hey, there's these small groups where you can come together with other people and study the Bible. And I'm like, perfect. These guys know what's going on. I need, I need to go hit these dudes up. So I did that. I went in and I joined this small group with these three dudes. And usually it's like three months long. I stayed in this Bible study with these guys for like three and a half years, dude. Just 
studying the Bible and studying the Bible and learning. And at the same time I'm studying the Bible, I'm also reading all these medical journals because I'm like, whatever's going in my brain, I got to figure this thing out because yeah. figured my brain is like a weapon system and it's malfunctioning. So if I can get in there and, and find out where it's malfunctioning, I can fix it and put it back together and get back in the fight. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm reading these medical journals and I'm reading these uh these scriptures and i'm seeing these incredible parallels i'm like this is wild like what science is telling us this bible has been telling us for two thousand years and so i created just a little program for myself to overcome trauma i'm just journaling my experiences yeah listening to what the bible says it says to take every thought captive you know well what does that mean it means when you're having a negative thought you gotta you gotta take that thing captive um because we can get on what what I call getting stuck on stupid, where we can go down that negative rabbit hole. And every yeah. negative thought, feeling, or emotion that we have, it takes five to seven positive emotions, uh, thoughts, feelings, and emotions just to get back to normal. So yep. if you and I, we have a negative interaction, it's going to take five to seven positive ones just to get back to normal. Not, yep. not even to build relationship with you, just to get back to, to neutral. And so I was like, okay, take every thought captive. There's another another scripture that says in James, it says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith. And I'm like, what? Count it all joy? What are you talking about? That's crazy. But there are studies that tell us that when people say finding the silver lining or turning lemons into lemonade, right, yeah. that, that show that when you focus on the positive aspects of, of the situation, yep. you're going to increase your mental health and your perception and your reality is going to change. Yep. And so we know those negative people in our lives, right? Those negative Nancys that, that are constantly, constantly negative. Do you mean to set your mic on uh, mute? All right. There we go. Um, Is that good? Okay. Yeah, no, you're on now. Um, no, it's crazy you say that because, like, just being a uh, and you know being based security. Um, anytime you focused on a negative situation or something sucked, it just made the situation suck. Like, you know, I don't, you know, I know <clears throat> doing drills and having to work, you know, twelve hour shifts since two weeks straight and whatnot, or is nothing necessarily maybe compared to being downrange, but like the more positive we were about it, the quicker we got through it. Or like, uh, you know, you get somebody that's, uh, that's, that's rude, right. That comes to the gate and they're like, just check my ID. You know, this isn't a social club. Stop talking to me. And you're like, yep. all right, dude. But like, you know, it took me a minute to, to kind of like, maybe they were having a bad day. I should step back. You know, maybe the next time I meet them, they're going to be much nicer, but I went through so many of those situations. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. So here's a, here's a fun little exercise that, that we'll do. And, and, and if you're listening, you can do this too. Okay. All right. So check, check this out, Ian. When, what's the last like new car or truck that you bought? What was it? Uh, it's the car I have now. It's a Chevy Silverado 1500. All right. When did you buy that thing? 2018. 2018. Okay. So fairly new, fairly new. Uh, so it was you, 2014 though. Okay. So you, yeah. you, but, but recent, like in the last four years you bought. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that, that Chevy Silverado, what color was it again? It's a uh, burgundy, burgundy Chevy Silverado. So you, you purchased that vehicle. And when you bought that truck and you started driving it around, did you start to notice other burgundy Chevy Silverados? Yeah, I think I'd noticed it. I I'd wanted a truck before then. So I started noticing them a little bit beforehand. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did everybody just start buying that truck because you did? I probably was a little late to the game, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, so 
you purchase yeah. this truck and then you start noticing them everywhere in your environment. Yep. And it it's not because everybody decided to buy that truck. They were always there. You're you more consciously aware of it. it. Ah, exactly right. You're aware <laughs> of it. They were always in your environment and your yep. brain was taking that information in. Your subconscious mind took that information in, but it didn't have value attached to it. So it just nope. pushed it away. There's no value attached to this truck. It just, just dismisses it. You don't need to know that. doesn't need to bring it to your conscious mind. But you assigned a value to that because you worked yep. a whole lot of hours to save up a whole lot of money so you could buy that truck. So your subconscious brain said, oh, okay, this is a valuable item. So when we see this item in our environment, we're going to bring it to your conscious mind. So you recognize these, like here they are. You've been looking at these. You've been wanting to buy this. You yeah. bought it. So it brings it to your consciousness. So what you focus on, you're going to find more of. So if you, you know, focus on negative experiences, yep. your brain's going to say, oh, okay, let's find more negative stuff. And it'll start pulling those things out. Yep. I think, you know, it's funny you say that. I remember reading a study in an article and I'm a terrible article junkie. Um, but I remember reading an article that says your brain only sees about 20 to 40% of what's actually going on. Any other details that are important just kind of fade into the background. And so in, in my book, I talk about the brain's super complex, but I really break it into three parts, right? Conscious yeah. mind, subconscious, and then the amygdala. And so the conscious mind does all your thinking, processing, like this is what I'm going to be planning for the day, making dinner, doing a recipe, typing, all of your thinking. Your subconscious, it regulates all of your body functions and it filters out all the information. So right now, my subconscious mind is telling me, okay, well, your stomach's full. You ate lunch. You're not hungry right now. Uh, the room's a little bit hot because the AC is not working right now. They're fixing it. Um, so it's it's telling me the body temperature or, or the, the room temperature, yeah. the air pressure, all of these things, right? But they're not important to me. But if my temperature gets too high, the subconscious mind is going to flip a switch in my brain and say, hey, it's too hot. Let's figure out why and fix it. Let's cool yep. down. So I may take I may take my jacket off. Uh, I may turn the air, air conditioning on. I may open a window. I'm going to do something to cool myself down. But all of that stuff is being handled by my subconscious. It only brings it to the conscious mind when uh, when it's important to us. And so go back to the idea of, okay, what we focus on, we find more of. So we can literally tell our brain what we want to see in our environment. So yep. I want to see positive things. Your brain will start showing you. I want to see yep. good people in the world. Your brain will start picking those things out and showing you. And so it's really funny because I work with law enforcement now. And, uh, they do the very same thing. You know, there was a guy that I know, good friend of mine now, and he was like the top guy in Seattle for finding stolen cars. And I asked him, I said, why do you think you're so good at finding stolen cars? He said, cause I look for them. I read the hot sheet. I memorize the license plates, make some models. And then I tell myself that I'm going to find these cars and I do because they're in their environment. Other police officers can be standing right there, but they're not focused on stolen cars like he is. And so he finds them because he's focusing on them. His yep. brain is actively looking for these things. So we can do that with our environment. We can do that with our relationships. So when guys come in and they're, they're like, Oh, my wife did this. And they dump on, on, on me about their wife. And they say, Oh, she did, you know, one, two, three, three things that really, really set them off that day. And I just let them talk. It's great. Great. Now, uh, are, are you done complaining about her? Good. Cause uh, now I want you to tell me, <coughs> 21 things that you really appreciate about your wife. I got all day. 
because I got to <laughs> offset that negative bias, yep. right? Because they gave me three things they didn't like. So now I need seven positive ones. Otherwise, they walk realize out how great there. they are. Yep. That's right. That's right. Otherwise, they walk out yep. and they don't feel any better. They actually feel worse because they're focusing on that negative thing. And now when they get home, they're going to look for all the other things they did. Yep. So, I mean, we have so much control over our own mind if we only knew how to engage it. And that's what yep. I did in my book is I, I, I teach people how to do that. You know, um, I'm actually going to have to purchase a copy of that because your book already sounds interesting. I did a previous uh, podcast episode and I kind of wish I had saved it for this episode um, where <clears throat> I talk about the you ever heard the book uh, Conversational Intelligence. No, I, uh, I've read Emotional Intelligence. OK, there's a book called Conversational Intelligence, and it goes over how the amygdala has a 0.07 second uh, reaction to something and it strongly reacts to negative emotions and if it doesn't react in that time it gives the prefrontal cortex which has a one second reaction chance to kind of process through what's going on so that's why we react more out of anger than we do out of anything else yep that's exactly and it just right. like kind of blew my mind i was like this this is why we think before we speak okay cool you know this is starting to make more sense so what's really crazy is so the amygdala is this tiny little piece of the brain yeah. it's kind of like in the center toward the back and it's our most primitive part of the brain you can have yeah. fight flight or freeze that's all you really have <laughs> and so uh in that fight flight or freeze um they used to think that the reason that we we respond so quickly to trauma is that trauma memories are stored right next to the amygdala. Yep. That's what, that's what the, the old way of thinking was that the trauma memories are in the hippocampus, which yep. the hippocampus is where all your memories are. And it's like over the top of this. And they thought that trauma memories were so were, were stored really close to the amygdala. Mm -hmm. That's why you had such a quick response to it. So when something else, people call it being triggered, right? It's an yep. overused word, but that's really what's happening. Your, your amygdala is triggered because something yep. in your environment reminded them of this trauma memory. And so it popped that fight, flight, or freeze response. But what they actually found out is those memories are not stored in the hippocampus next to okay. the amygdala. They're actually stored inside of the amygdala. Huh. So that's why it's so hard to have people try and unpack trauma memories because it's not in a normal trauma. Re it's not in a normal memory recall. Like you can recall normal memories inside the hippocampus. It's not in there at all. It's inside the amygdala. And so you guys can check this out. They did this study on what are called zebra fish. Um, so just look up zebra fish uh, amygdala study and you'll, you guys will find it. It just came out like a month ago. It's fascinating. Fascinating. It opens up whole new possibilities for treating PTSD. Now that we know where those trauma memories are stored, uh, we've been looking in the wrong place this whole time. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Um... And, so, and so what it does is it, what I do in my book is I teach people how to basically rewire their brain. So what they found out is that people used to think that you could strengthen or weaken memories, right? So in some therapies, they'll have you do talk therapy where you just talk through that trauma like over and over and over and over again. And what they thought they could do is, is weaken that, weaken that uh, memory. Okay. But that's, that's not true. You, you can't do that. Memories, they, they cannot be weakened or strengthened. They have to be rewritten. So you can basically delete that file and write a new one. Yep. And that's that's the theory that I put forth in my book. Uh, so it was really cool that I actually found a study that that will uh, that, that quantifies that. Now. That is crazy. Um, so 
you were talking about, and we're going to dial back a little bit because uh, I want to cover some of the um, other you know, things you were talking about. You were talking about by the time you developed this program where you were able, like after you went through, uh, you, you went to church, you started figuring all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. You were talking about you developed a program and then um, you started your uh, first business as a janitor. Yeah, that's right. So uh, <laughs> it was really hard for me to find work, you know, being a janitor was kind of easy. I could work by myself, work at night, didn't have to deal with a lot of people. But um, uh, so that's the kind of work I could find. And I thought, you know, I can do this. I can do this better. And so I started my own little janitorial company kind of out of desperation because not a lot of people would hire me because I wasn't reliable. Uh, And so I called my company Reliable Commercial Cleaning because I knew that was something I was lacking in the beginning. (laughs) It was a constant reminder to be reliable. And so I started Reliable Commercial Cleaning and it was just me and one other guy scrubbing toilets in the middle of the night. And over the last 14 years, uh, me and my team, we've grown the company to have over 110 employees now in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it's been an amazing journey. You know, I've got a really great team, uh, that helps me. I definitely don't do it all on my own, but, uh, I, I, uh, I do a lot more of the professional development and I do a lot of team building and, you know, things like that now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it's been quite a journey to do that. And <laughs> at the same time, I'm trying to figure out my mental health. Right. And so I developed yeah. this little program just for myself to be able to manage it. Cause there were days where I have so much anxiety that, um, I, I would have to lock myself in my office, crawl under my desk and fall asleep. Cause I learned if I could fall asleep, I could reset my brain and that would help me to, um, turn off that anxiety response. Wow. So, uh, you know, I created this little program for myself. I had great success. And then six years ago, God called me to lead other veterans onto the mission field to find the same healing that I did. So big part of this process that we call healing through service is that there's healing through serving God and serving your community. And I talk about the scripture that goes along with that concept. And I also talk about the science that backs it up. So each chapter of the book talks about a different segment of the brain and how this concept gets rolled out. But what's really cool is I take a team. So what I do is called Operation Restore Hope. And I'll take a team of 20 to 30 guys and we'll go down to Mexico. And in two days, we'll build a home for a homeless family. And I teach them this program. I show them how it works. And then they go out and physically do it. And when they do that, uh, it, it fundamentally changes their life. It changes their mindset. It changes their life just like it did for me. And nice. so I always, I always try to get guys to go on that with me. Uh, some of them can't go for financial reasons or they can't get a passport, whatever. So we developed the book and an online video series for those people who can't go with me on the trip. They can still go through the course, get the knowledge, get the practical application and start serving in their own, uh, own community. And, and the program that I created, it's opened amazing doors. I've received a couple of different awards from the Department of Veterans Affairs for my work. And a few years ago, I was named Seattle's hometown hero for this program. And really? I also, yeah. So I, not just that, but I, I do the mental health training for the Auburn Police Department here. I work with uh, LA County Sheriff's. I also sit on the Police Advisory Council here for the city. And uh, I'm I'm one of the, the team members of the Seattle Seahawks Task Force 12, which are the, the Seahawks chose 12 veteran nonprofits for them to support. And I'm kind of the unofficial 
uh, chaplain for that organization. So that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've been over to Lithuania in October. I was over there teaching at a college. They, Lithuania has the highest suicide rate in all of uh, Europe or all of Eastern Europe. And so yeah. I've been consulting for this college for a while and then they wanted me to fly out. So I flew out and I taught for a week there how to utilize this program within their student body. So, yeah, man, it's been it's been amazing just to see the response from people and then to see what they do after they go through the program and then what they do next. It's amazing to see uh, people completely trans transformed. So I want to break a little stereotype that people have, especially in today's culture, because I know like back in the I want to say the 60s or 70s, they had this huge college push because not enough people were going through getting their degree. You mentioned earlier that you got accepted to Stanford, but tell me about <laughs> yeah. that program more. Yeah, so I applied for Stanford. I I, I have no college degree, right? Like I got a high school diploma and that, that's it. I have no higher education at all. But um, they have this program called LBAN. So it's, it's the Latin Association Business uh, Network, right? Uh, and so what it is, Stanford <clears throat> did this research study uh, on, on, on entrepreneurship in America. And they found out that, that Hispanic entrepreneurs grew, that segment of the population grew by 44% over the last six years as where white counterparts only grew by 4%. Mm. Right. So this huge growth in Hispanic business owners, but the problem is they only grow so far. They, none of them not, I won't say none of them, but very few of them can scale past a million dollars. And they said, wow, we have this huge growth in Hispanic businesses, but they're not going past a million dollars. Like what, what's happening? Why is this? And so they started researching it and they found that there were three main reasons why uh, Hispanics were not uh, getting past that threshold. Number one, they lack access to higher education. Number two, they lack a network of people who are in that million dollar range that they can partner with and help to, to scale their business. And three, they lack access to funding to be able to scale their business. And so part of the research, they looked at this and um, I'll provide you with a link to the whole study that they did. Yeah, absolutely. Part, part of it was that Hispanics required about 40% more collateral to, a, to give to a bank than their white counterpart. Yeah. So, and 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 I'm not saying that that because I'm Hispanic that I've been held down. I'm not saying no. that at all, right? And well, I've never said that, and I'm never gonna say that because I truly believe that if you work hard, you can make it, and that's exactly absolutely. What I've made it, right? Like yeah. I'm doing well. But I I recognize also that hey, this system is kind of jacked up, and I am lacking in all three of those areas. I don't have higher education. I lack access to people with net worth. Yeah, uh, who have those connections, and I I can't get funding. I have that same problem. I can't get funding to scale my business. I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, this is exactly what I'm dealing with, and that's what they found. It's not uncommon. So you they know, created Lban. Going back to what you said, you know, you're not trying to like point fingers or say, hey, because I I'm Latino, I, I you know I'm set back on purpose. Um, it's it's for me as a white male, I'll go ahead, you know not you know hard to figure out it was for to hear that the system is just inherently racist and stuff is like all right you know maybe that's not in my experience but i am a white male so maybe i can figure out where this is coming from i heard about a study in housing 
I believe it was like mid 1900s where they were coming out with housing, I think maps or loans, but it was the bank system itself. And it set up different, like these were records and actual history. And I kind of sat there and I was like, is this hard to believe? And as I'm thinking about it, I was like, I don't think so. Like this, like, you know, seeing stuff like this, I can be Mm -hmm. like, all right, yeah, that seems a little messed up. They set different uh, community uh, demographics in different color zones. And if you weren't in a color zone, you weren't given, um, you know, it's harder for you to get like a housing loan or something. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously the system has evolved since then, but no, you, I mean, when you say stuff like that, or like, you know, when you sit there and say, look, man, I'm Latino and I haven't, I'm okay. You know, there are areas where we could do better. So that's awesome that Stanford's doing that. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. So it's called the LBAM program and I I got accepted to that, which was really, really cool. Um, (laughs) Because like I said, I'm, I've, I grew up super, super poor. Right. And I've done, I've done really well for myself. I'm not complaining. And, and this whole, like, I I hate when people talk about, oh, white fragility or, you know, white privilege. I'm like, no, no, no. Trust me. Do you live (laughs) in America? Okay. You do great. Then you have privilege. I don't care what color you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are on the social economical ladder in America. So you go to another country. 90% of the world. So the only privilege that we have is American privilege. And we all got that. Trust me. Because that's why millions of people are dying every day to get to America because they know no matter what color, creed, ethnicity, religion, they got a chance here that they would never have in their own country. Yep. So so I I don't get involved in any of that stuff. I actually push back on a lot of it. Cool. A lot of that narrative, uh, which, you know, really ticks off some <laughs> people who try to push that narrative because, you know, I'm basically the poster boy that they're saying, oh, we want to help this type of person. But um, when I when I push back and say, well, actually, what you're doing is not helping. It's actually <laughs> um, they don't like that. Anyway, I digress. I, I yeah, won't, we no, won't talk nope, about politics. Yeah, but nope. I could for a long time. Trust no, me. dude. I mean, I'm telling you, like it, it, you can find bits and circumstances where you're like, all right, yeah, that really makes sense. Or I can see, you know, the argument there, but man, I, I want to, you know, traveling overseas, going to different countries and like, you know, in South, central and South America and, and Europe, I could go back anyways. Um, totally so, so the L, yeah. So the LBAM program is, it's, it's great. Right. Yeah. And I don't ever think that we should take from somebody else to give, you know, right. Like don't take a seat from, from somebody that's white and give it to me. Like that's, and that's not what they're doing. They started a whole Good. new program. That's just for Hispanics to, to help us hit those three areas, right. To give us access to higher education. Uh, and they have donors that donate money so I can go and do this thing for free. Right. So it's like an $18,000 program that I get for, I think I paid like two grand for it, something like that. Right. So they have donors that pay. Yeah. Uh, Cause they believe in this program and they have companies too that, that, that donate, but a lot of it's privately funded uh, by other Hispanics typically. So they have that. And then they created a network of high net worth individuals who want to help guys like me, um, get connected so we can yeah. scale our business. And then they bring in the capital investors who say, yes, I believe in this. Uh, and I'm going to give you money so you can scale up your business. So it's not like they just give me money, right? It's a loan. It's yeah. a business proposition, but at least I have access to that and I have, it's available to me. And so that is incredible because, um, th- what I did is I created the very first, 
Oh, so so we're we're kind of jumping ahead here, but the reason I got into L band, and then we'll go back to this in a few yeah. minutes. But the reason I got into L band was not for my cleaning company at all. I actually okay. created a piece of technology that mm. uh, is one hundred percent effective at present at preventing suicide, and that's how I got into the program. So, so we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, well, good on Stanford. Um, I actually want to look this program up a lot, a little more, and you know. Uh, shoot i mean it seems legit and i can uh push it more um so yeah you were talking i think actually what is the app called oh okay so the app is called q actual but originally it was called operation pop smoke yeah and so i i developed it so my program is working we're doing great we're helping a lot of guys but then there were guys that would struggle and they wouldn't reach out for help. And I'm like, what? I'd be like, guys, what are you doing? Like, wh why didn't you call me when you were struggling? They're like, oh, I don't want to bother you. I didn't really know who to call. Uh, I don't want to, um, you know, I could just deal with it on my own. And and you're busy. I don't want to bother you. And I'm like, this is what I do full time, guys. Like, I, I, you're not bugging me. <laughs> and so I started researching this. Like, why are guys doing this? Uh, number one, they didn't want to feel like a burden on their friends and family. Right. And number two. Uh, I learned that when somebody's experiencing a mental health crisis, part of their brain actually shuts down. The cognitive thought processing that we talked about before that has good decision-making skills, long-term yeah. planning, and the ability to overcome impulses, that part of the brain shuts down. It, those, those systems are not available. The brain is malfunctioning in that moment. And so we know that suicide is an impulse because when we talk to people who survived a suicide attempt, they all regret it. They all regret it. And they may have multiple attempts. They regret them all. But they regret it at the minute, the, the moment that they initiate that, they regret it. So what happens in the brain? Well, the brain shuts down and those faculties aren't available. So like we said, good, good decision-making skills, long-term planning, but most important, the ability to overcome impulses is gone. It's not wow. working. So now when somebody has the impulse to attempt suicide, they act on it without being able to process through that moment. So think about this, right? And, and you, you, you listeners out there, think about this. You're driving on the freeway, right? And it's rush hour traffic and some dude runs up on the side of you and then cuts you off. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've had the impulse before <laughs> to just punch that gas and push that dude into the Jersey barrier. Maybe it's just me. I mean, no. y'all don't got to admit it, right? But may maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only asshole in the room. I don't know, <laughs> right? I would but disagree with that, you know. But. <laughs> but so that's that impulse, right? Like we're like, oh, we want to do that, but we but we don't, right? Because in an instant, your brain processes through that moment and says, no, 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 not good because you could go to jail. You could kill somebody. You could destroy your car. You could all lose your job, all these things, right? Like bing, 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 bing. And the brain says, okay, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to suppress that impulse. But- when you're going through a mental health crisis, those faculties are not available to you. So when you have the impulse, you act on it without being able to process through it. So people don't actually want to, to commit suicide. They don't want to die. They just want to stop living the way that they are right now. And they yeah. don't know how to process through that moment. That's exactly what happened to me. I couldn't process through that moment in time. Had the impulse to commit suicide. And I fell asleep. That's what reset my brain is I fell asleep. Well, that's not available to everybody, right? That happened to me just quite by accident. Yeah. So I did this research and I, I found this out. The other thing that I found out is that 67% of men in America admit to having a mental health crisis. So think about that. 67% of men in America admit to having a mental health crisis in their lifetime. 
That's two out of three men. Yeah. Admit it. Admit it. So ask yourself, would you, would you admit it right now? So if you're listening to this, think, think about that. Like, would you be one of the guys that admitted it or not? And I'm sure a lot of you guys are like, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Well, well so I mean, <laughs> knowing that two thirds were able to admit it, maybe now it'd be a little easier for me to say, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, I guess I've been through a. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but the reality is none of us are getting out of this thing uh unscathed we're all going to experience trauma we're all going to experience some sort of mental health crisis so we got to start talking about it we got to start finding solutions uh and and quick so we can help each other and so that's that's what i do full-time now is i try to change the perspective the narrative about mental health and so in my book i i wrote my book and i turned into the publisher and she said, uh, can you show us the book real quick? Oh yeah. 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 So she said, she said, uh, so it's right here. It's healing through service. It's the warrior's guidebook to overcoming trauma. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You go to my publisher, redemption press a redemption lot cheaper. Press. You can also get it on Kindle for like 10 bucks. Right. And if you want, if you think there's value here, there's an online, uh, curriculum you can do as well. So it's an online video series that you can do on your own chapter by chapter in the book, or you can join one of the small groups and I will lead you through the process. Okay. And there's also churches. So check with churches in your area. They may be using the curriculum as well, but what, so, so, uh, I wrote the book and I turned it into her and she, she comes back and she says, you know, Aaron, I've been praying about this and I feel like, um, I feel like you're missing something here. I feel like you, you have one more chapter that needs to be written. And I was like, I ain't got nothing. Like, what are you talking about? Like everything I know is in that book. And she goes, I don't know. You need to pray about it because I just feel like it's missing something. And she was right. So there was this concept that I had been working on for, for quite a while. And I hadn't really fleshed it out. I hadn't really like put it on paper and and built it out, but that's what I did. And it's this idea of these three different mental health camps that people find themselves in. And I know these camps because I've lived in all three of them. So the first camp, uh, is on the left side. And I call that the victim mentality. So the victim mentality is somebody who's experienced trauma, but that victimhood has become their identity now. Yeah. Like that is who they are. And we know people like this in our life, right? That nothing is ever their fault. They got fired from their job because they were better at their job than their boss was right. Like it's always somebody else. They never take any personal responsibility for anything that happens. They're just a perpetual victim. Yeah. Of life. And we know people like that, right? The victim mentality. And I lived there for a long time when I first started dealing with mental health and ended up homeless because of the VA. I was in that victim status. Gotcha. On the other, on the other side, the right side, I call it the uh, denier camp. And I used to live in that camp as well. People who denied that mental health was a real thing, a real issue. Okay. And when I was first in the military, I thought like, oh, the only guys who get PTSD are like the super war heroes, right? The guys who've done multiple tours, you know, kicking indoors, old Vietnam dudes. Like those are the guys who get PTSD. The rest of us, like we don't, it's not a real, it's not an issue. But what happens in that camp is that they say things like, oh man, you, you just, if you just tried harder, you know, you'd, uh, you'd get over this. Or if you just prayed more or, um, you know, you just need to suck it up. Like those are all the things that they say that yeah. really damage the narrative uh, around mental health. But the majority of us, we live in this camp in the middle and they call it the silent majority because the majority of us have experienced some sort of trauma or mental health issue, but we don't talk about it. We're yeah. surviving and some of us are actually striving and doing quite well, but we don't talk about our mental health issues. We don't yeah. talk about it at all because we don't want the people on the right 
the deniers to paint us as the people on the left, the victim mentality. So we say nothing. We don't want people to know, especially if you're in leadership, right? Like if you're in management or in leadership or you have a government job or you're in the military, police, fire, like mm, nothing. You're not saying anything about it because you don't want to jeopardize your career. Yeah. And so we stay silent. But here's the thing. If the silent majority would stand up and say, hey, I struggle with mental health, but I'm surviving and I'm striving, we could change the conversation for everybody. Because if we stand up, we give the people on the left the victim mentality. We give them hope that they can do better and be better. The people on the right, the denier camp, we change what they think mental health looks like. Because they look at a guy like me who owns a very successful company. I travel all over the world. I'm an award-winning author, speaker, coach. And they say, but you struggle with depression and, and mental health? Like, I, how, that that doesn't make sense to me. You, you're so successful. I said, yeah, man. But some days, success for me is just getting out of bed. Okay? <laughs> like, like, some days are rough, dude. It's hard for me. Some days I still struggle really hard with mental health. It changes what they think mental health looks like. But the most important thing it does is the people in a silent majority. It empowers them to stand up and say, hey, me too. I'm struggling as well. And then together we can walk out of that darkness. It takes – do you remember Admiral McRaven's quote of the um, – what was it? To set yourself up for success throughout the day, first thing you should do is make your bed. Yeah. Like you quoting that, you know, some days it's just so hard for me to get out of bed. And that's the hardest struggle you go through to just yep. get up and get out of bed and then make it. All right. You've already beat the hardest thing there is. What's next? What else can I do? And that, that kind of like, I don't know, for me, it just seemed like, great, I'll get out of bed and make it. All right. What's next? But, you know, it hit a little differently when you said that. Yeah. What you focus on, you find more of. Right. So if you're like, yeah. all right, just getting out of bed, that's a win. And you get out of bed. Okay. That's a win. What's next? Making it. Okay. That's a win. Okay. What's next? Okay. I got a hygiene, right? Yeah. Like just those small little victories and they start compounding. I just did a TikTok video about this this morning, <laughs> right? Cause yesterday I was really struggling with mental health, uh, in the morning and I had to, I was like, okay, I got to go back to basics, structure, routine, and discipline. And this is what we do. And so it did, it helped me get my mind refocused and recentered and, and I was able to finish out my day, but that's awesome. Those, those three camps, um, you know, we, we all find ourselves in those three different camps and it's how do yeah. we transition from one to the other, you know, and then, and then be brave enough to step out of the darkness and start changing the conversation. So I started a YouTube channel and now I have a TikTok as well, where I talk about mental health Mondays. So on Mondays, I talk about a different mental health issue or condition or thing that struggle that I've dealt with, or, um, you know, a tip or something like that, just to help people start the conversation within their own friend groups and their own family groups, you know, like these are talking points that you can use to start the conversation about mental health in your own friend group. Man, I, cause I mean, like you were talking about the victimhood and I'm thinking myself how, I mean, even just like talking about this stuff, you know, from victimhood, you know, I thought, all right, cool. I don't want to be that victim. So, you know what, I'm just going to be tough about it. But then, you know, you you mentioned TikTok. I was watching a TikTok video where it was like uh, men crying or men, you know, being emotional or upset isn't a norm. But yet, you know, men struggle with things inside. And then either. Yeah, no, with the TikTok, I'm able to like kind of 
push through all three camps of, all right, cool. You don't want to be the victim, but you got to be tough. But now you're the silent majority because you're not talking about it. And it's kind of bizarre. So I, I look at it like this. And so I try and explain it to people. Uh, I, I compare a mental wound to okay. a physical wound. Yeah. Right. So if I had a broken arm, mm-hmm. I would tell you guys like, hey, man, I got a broken arm. Can somebody Arms take broken. me to the ED? Right. You take me to emergency room. I see a doctor. He gives me some immediate treatment, uh, puts it in a cast, puts me on a treatment plan, gives me some medication. And in six to eight weeks, I'm healed up and good to go. Yeah. I come back. I tell my friends and family like, hey, man, busted arm. So their expectation of me changes. They yeah. give me some grace and some space so I can heal properly. Okay. We need to have that exact same approach when it comes to mental health and a mental wound. When somebody experiences trauma, we need to operate the same way. We need to recognize like, oh, this person just experienced trauma. Let me get you to some, some mental health care. Yeah. That mental health care, they're going to assess them, uh, treat them, probably give them some medication in the short term. I am not a fan of long-term medication, but some short-term medication may be helpful. And then they're going to put them on a treatment plan. Then that individual is going to come back to their friends and family and say, Hey guys, experience this mental health wound. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not gonna be able to operate at the same capacity for a little bit until I heal from this. Uh, But once I heal, then I can get back in the fight. And they're going to give you space and grace to be able to heal as well. But we've got to start thinking about a mental wound the same way we think about a physical wound. With your thinking about everything you've been talking about, about how you can uh, deal with your mental health issues and talk to your friends and family about it, but also like, you know, bringing people into a group space. Um, the vet, you know, veterans on social media often go, you know, what are some things you miss about the military and like community sense of community is one of those. And like with that program, you know, we're with, um, either the one where they can go and uh, use your program to go into their own community and make it better. There's a sense of community there. Um, I think your just your programs in general are able to take a lot of the things that veterans miss out on in the military and just provide, you know, sense of community. What else are some um, camaraderie? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of organizations that, that have figured this out, but they're just not executing it um, well, you know, and I'm not knocking these organizations. No. They just haven't figured it out like I have on the brain side. And I'm not trying to grow the big organization. So yeah. so guys like Team Red, White, and Blue, Team Rubicon, The Mission Continues, like these guys are great. They're doing a great job of doing community service out there, getting guys together, doing community service because uh, it's working. Guys love that. But they're missing out on the mental health portion, right? They need to be explaining to guys like, okay, you feel this way because of X, Y, and Z. And this is how you continue to do these things. You can't just come one time a month or once every six months or once every three months and do this. This has to be a lifestyle. And so I think if they can start to transition, like my program is, is a great asset to any one of these organizations that, that if they, if, they would dig into this and they could see how the brain operates Yeah, and then they could start teaching this to the people that are already coming. Cause they, they want that sense of community. They want that brotherhood. They want to be back on mission and they're doing a great job with that. I think if they slowed down for a minute and poured into these guys when it came to mental health and yeah. showed them, you know, they don't have to use my program. You know, this, these studies are out there just, explain to them why this is so successful for them. They'll be able to understand it and make this a lifestyle instead of, Oh, I'm going to come like one time a year, one time a, uh, you know, a quarter or something like that. 
I really want to point out something pretty crucial that uh, I know, you know, so we were initially talking about this yesterday. Cox internet um, is not the greatest internet on the planet. I promise I won't say anything too terrible about them on the uh, interview, but um, my Cox internet cut out and I wasn't able to continue this. But one thing we were talking about is how uh, Aaron literally like tore through the studies. Aaron doesn't have a degree. Aaron has a high school education. He was uh, a Marine um, who jumped out of planes and, you know, did stuff like that. He got out, but he's a, for lack of better terms, a normal dude who just goes through and takes the time to read the studies. I mean, this wasn't something like got my degree. This made a really big emphasis on this field. I just felt passionate pursuit about it. I mean, anybody can figure this out. Everything I did was out of necessity. And that's what I tell people. Like what I've created, I didn't create anything. I just took things that were already in the environment and put them together into an easy to understand platform for the average guy. Right. And so what I work with, uh, and I work with a lot of psychologists now and social workers and, and they're just totally blown away. They're like, they, they come to my, it's, this is what I hear most often Okay, is they come to one of my, my trainings, or they'll come to one of my speaking engagements and they just kind of sit there in the back. Like, who is this guy? Cause I, right off the bat, I tell them like, <laughs> these are all the reasons I'm not qualified to be here. Right. And I just list them off. And then I start breaking down the science and I tell yep. them how the brain works and all this stuff. And they're just like, how does this guy know this? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> but here's what I hear most often. People come up and they say, after I've spoken, they come up and they say, you know what? You didn't teach me anything I didn't already know. And I'm like, okay, good. They said, but you put it in such a way that I would have, <laughs> I would have never looked at it like that before. Cause I yeah. just took these things and I put them in a sequential order yep. and they're like, oh my gosh, the answers have been here the whole time. We just didn't see it. It's, 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 it's like, we've been trying to, to put together a puzzle, but mm-hmm. we didn't have the box to see what it looked like. You know, we said yep. all these pieces, we knew what they were. We knew that they fit together somehow, but until we put them together in sequential order, they yeah. were like, oh yeah, that's so easy. Yep. I, uh, when I first started my personal TikTok, I've gotten away from the educational videos, but like, you know, I started cause I was so tired of COVID misinformation from the right and the left that I was like, you know what, mm-hmm. screw it. What is COVID? Like what, what are these vaccines? What are they supposed to do? Where's the science behind it? But like, I understood the basic English out of it, but when I didn't understand, you know, what, a a zebra cell that's not a real thing by the way but uh you know when i didn't understand something i just went to look it up i was like all right what is this and i I just kept googling until i figured out okay cool this is a cell in the body that reacts a certain way to you know like the 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 protein or whatever and then like things started to connect and then i can move on to you know finish the rest of the sentence but uh and it's all out there yeah that's the beautiful thing about the information age yeah. And, and in my book, I put all the studies and I tell people like, you don't have to believe me, man. Like the studies are listed in the book. Go look those up uh, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Like you read it for yourself. It's right there. So I, I, I love that. And that's that's actually how I built the suicide prevention app. So I, I talked to you yeah. guys about the the app, right? It's called yeah. originally it was called Operation Pop Smoke, and then it became Q Actual. So Operation Pop Smoke, I needed a way for guys to communicate when they were struggling with mental health, right? We talked yeah. about how the brain shuts down. And so I was a communications guy, right? Like my job in Anglico was to make sure comms were up so we could speak to the bird and we could get steel on target. So I was like, okay, I need a better way for guys to communicate when they're going through a mental health crisis. So that's what I started to build. 
and I looked at a few studies. The first one I looked at was the Department of the Army. They did a 40-year-long study to determine why we were so successful on the battlefield. And they wow. narrowed it down to one single element, which is the squad. Because we fight in squads, we're more successful because every member of the squad values the squad over themselves. Therefore, they fight harder and longer to stay alive because they don't want to let the squad down. And on the reverse side of that, every member of that squad knows that if they get injured or if they get pinned down, their squad is going to walk through hell to get them out because we're never going to leave a man behind. Okay, so I in in this app, I reintroduced the idea of the squad back as being a successful component of the veteran's life. So most of the mental health apps that are out there right now, it's basically you interacting with an app on your own to create a better mental health plan for yourself. Great. Yeah, great. It's effective but not all the way okay. because the strength is in the squad. There has been countless studies that prove that. So what I do is I create uh, a private network for people okay. to be able to communicate. So you would download the app and you'd send uh, a message through the app to three of your friends to join your squad. Now this is a private squad. You cannot search for people like you can on social media or anything like that. It's a private messaging app at its core it's a private messaging app so me and my three friends are on it and we can chat back and forth just like we can uh on text message or facebook messenger um or or wechat any of that stuff right yeah just a private messaging app and when i say private i mean like private private because it's on secured servers i don't have access to that being the owner of the app uh those that That's... those data points are only on your phone they're mm. not stored uh, on my server, like Facebook does. Facebook stores all of your messaging, yep. right? We don't do that. It's on your phone and you can set it to auto delete every 30 days if you want. So totally secure. That's pretty extreme too. Yeah. I, I was a naval weapon security manager. Okay. So, <laughs> so I dealt with all the crypto and top secret and secret yeah. documents and crypto. Yeah. So dude, security is like yeah, top of the mind, bro. So, <laughs> so I took this and uh, I, I built this app. Uh, that's totally secure. And now we can chat back and forth, but there's plenty of chat apps. So what makes us different? Well, there's a couple things. Number one, we have an emergency button. So on the app, if you are struggling with a mental health crisis, a lot of times people can't, uh, they don't know who am I going to call? What am I going to say? I don't want to bother people. Remember their good decision-making skills, long-term planning, and the ability to go overcome impulses is reduced. So we needed a user-friendly platform for them to be able to communicate. So on the app, you can push one single button. And when you press that button and hold it for three seconds, it uh, sends an alert to your friends that you're struggling with mental health. So it does two things. So here's what the app looks like, right? There you here. go. So if you press that red button and you hold it for three seconds, it sends an alert out to your friends that you're struggling with mental health. And it pops up on their phone like an Amber alert. And they click it and it takes them into the chat and they're instantly chatting with the individual in distress. But for the person who initiated the signal, uh, it doesn't take them into the chat. It takes them into a cognitive reconditioning program, which we call grounding techniques, which are widely used in the mental health arena for decades. And so it, it opens up this feature that puts them through a cognitive reconditioning program to bring their good decision-making skills back online. So once they're having rational thought, when they complete this, it takes about 15 seconds. They complete it. They're starting to have rational thought now. Then it brings them into the chat and their buddies are there uh, to start chatting with them to help them with whatever they're dealing with in that moment. But let's say that individual goes dark, stops talking or starts saying some things that, that make us concerned. Uh, I see this happen on 
like uh, Facebook chat um, message boards all the time where somebody will post a goodbye message and then people are scrambling like, does anybody know where this guy lives? Who is he? Call his mom, his wife. And I see this whole scrambling take place trying to find this guy. Well, with our app, when you press that button, it turns on your GPS locator. That's one of the permissions you give the app when you download it. So huh. you press you press that button. It sends the alert to your friends and family. It pops up on their screen. And if you're saying something concerning or you're not answering up, they can press that same button. And now they can navigate directly to your location or they can send emergency services to your location if they think there's been an attempt because those moments really matter. That's pretty and cool. So it, it, yeah, it, it's so Operation Pop Smoke, right? So yeah. on the battlefield, uh, we would use smoke to mark targets to call yeah. for fire, but I would also use smoke to mark a drop zone or a, a, a landing zone for a chopper to come yeah. in and get our dead and our wounded. I would pop a red smoke and I'd throw it on the battlefield as that chopper was coming in and he knew exactly where to land to pick up our dead and wounded. And so that's why I call that Operation Pop Smoke originally. Uh, and I was using it in the veteran community. And then I got a phone call from Cone Health out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And they said, we see what you're doing with veterans. Can you build us a version of that for our, our hospital? And I was like, yes, I can. So I signed a partnership agreement with them. We did a pilot study. And in the first 90 days of the pilot, now this is with their staff, their, their nurses and doctors. So in the first 90 days, we prevented nine suicides. And they were like, this is incredible. We want to bring this and do an actual medical study on it. So that's what they did. They took it and they put it through a medical study, a 10 month long medical study. It started last February and it ended in October. We had a 100% success rate. So these are people coming into the emergency room, seeking help for suicidal ideations. They would give them this app and put them into the study. And, and in the, in the 10 months that the study was running, uh, it was a 100% success rate. Everybody survived who used the app. And number two, none of them came back to the emergency room looking for help. So this, the, the statistics for the national average are seven out of a hundred people are going to come back within the first 30 days uh, of being treated for suicidal ideation. So you're going to come back again. And so with our app, it was zero. Uh, so remarkable, remarkable studies. And so the white paper is being published on that. So it should be out uh, here in the next month. And uh, another research firm has is super excited about it. And so they want to continue doing research on the app. So we signed another agreement with them. We're working with some colleges to get this into collegiate sports. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get it into different hospital systems, VA programs, you know, trying to get it in the hands of as many people as I can Heck yeah. as quick as I can. And so that's how I got into L-Band. <laughs> there we go. There's there we the go. Big... There's the big loop. <laughs> well, so one thing you brought up yesterday that I find kind of cool is like people are like, all right, cool. Well, there's the mental health side of it. Um, you brought up that the insurance side of it and what it meant for hospitals when mm -hmm. somebody does go back within that 30 days. Yep. So yeah, it's a numbers game, right? So here's the thing. Yeah. I, I love the hospital system, not knocking them. Right. But they didn't yeah. come to me because they were, it was a philanthropic endeavor. Okay. They came to me because they needed a way to mitigate risk because it, people going in and committing, uh, uh having suicide attempts and, um, uh, actually completing suicide. It's, it costs the healthcare system $69 billion a year. That's from then that studies from 2017. And so all of these, we've seen a 20% uptick uh, in suicides in every demographic since the pandemic started. Okay. So these are 2017 mm -hmm. numbers. Uh, $69 billion is what it costs the healthcare system. 
And so it used to be the insurance companies just covered that, right? If you had insurance, yeah. you went in for suicidal ideations, they covered it. And uh, you go back as many times and they'd cover it, but they changed it. And they said, you know, we're not doing that anymore. Mr. Hospital system, if you treat your patient and they come back within the first 30 days uh, of, of your treatment, we're not going to cover that anymore. And so it shifted that healthcare burden onto the hospital system. And now the yeah. hospital system's having to cover that. So they're looking at a way to mitigate that risk. That's why they came to me. That's why I built out the app. That's why we're pushing it forward is to say is because hospital systems are losing their butt on this deal. How much did you say one visit within the first 30 days cost? So if you if you break down the numbers, it would be on average $50,000 is what it costs um, for somebody to go in. So you got to think about like maybe it costs like $6,000 for this guy to go in and he's had some ideation, suicidal ideations, and, and it's six grand. But this other guy has an attempt where they got to oh. put him into emergency surgery and they've got to do all these different things okay, and he's yeah. in the hospital for a week. Right. So maybe his is, so when they take all of yeah. that together and they combine it, that's what the average comes in. The average is $50,000 per that's, occurrence. You can, see how, you can see how quickly that adds up, man. I mean, you just take that $69 billion and it, it, there's, um, let's see, what was it? Uh, 14 million people entered the emergency room every year looking for help for suicidal ideations. 1.4 million will have a suicide attempt and 50,000 people will end their life every year. And this is 2017. Okay. Pandemics made it much worse. So in North Carolina, they have the Tar Heel stadium, right? It's yeah. a college stadium. Okay. 50,200 people fit into that stadium. So if you want to think like, well, what's 50,000 people look like, go look up the Tar Heel stadium and you'll see a photo of the Tar Heel Stadium and how many people that look, what that looks like. That's yeah. how many people complete suicide. That's how many people end their life prematurely every single year. And that's not to count. They don't count overdoses in that. And there's a lot of people who commit suicide through overdose, but it's not tracked the same way. This is just where they can say, yep, this was definitely a suicide. They left a note. I'm looking you, through. I did the math on... Uh... 22 a day and you were saying 50,000 people and I was like wait a second that kind of sounds similar to the math I did like at the rate it's going now um how many lives will we have lost by the time it gets to an average of zero a day that's not zero a year but zero a day mm -hmm. and uh it was a lot more drastic than I remember it's 230,863 lives in 55 years yep <sighs> That yeah no and and in fifty five years you said the average was what fifty thousand a year yeah fifty thousand a year is 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 how many people in their life prematurely so and even so, oh go ahead. go ahead sorry all I was gonna say was even with like the 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 veteran twenty two a day rate I mean you think about it fit and to put it in perspective uh, fifty thousand in fifty five years I mean how many lives is that ultimately. Yeah. And so it's funny because I tell people like I'm on TikTok and they're like, oh, that's for 12 year old girls. And I said, yeah, I know. That's why I'm on it. Because the highest yep. growing demographic of, of people ending their life right now are girls 12 to 20. Really? That's the highest rate. They're climbing faster than any other demographic. Now, veterans still are on the top. Yeah, but that's, no, but that's the fastest growing demographic of people ending their life. I didn't know females, that. 12 to 20. Yeah, it's crazy. So 
that's why I'm on TikTok, bro. <laughs> Seriously, I, you're not I just like, an older oh, guy that uh, no, I'm like, yeah. I got to figure out how this thing works. Like, what does this thing do? How do I do this? Dude, I'm still on like uh, that. I'm like, oh, wait, you can pause the video and then play it to where you want to get. <laughs> oh, OK. I've had this for what, six months now? Yeah, that's about how long I've had. No, I started at the beginning of the year, so I've had it like two months now. Nice. So I, yeah. So it's it's the numbers are staggering. And so here's here's and I look at it like this right? Because I've had a suicide, uh, suicidal ideations, right? I've thought about ending my life, but here's the thing. If I would have ended my life early, this is why this is so, so important building this app and getting it in front of people because I'm, I'm trying to get it in hospitals. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're working in administration for a hospital system, reach out to me. I'd love to get this into your hospital system. You can start saving lives. Dude, I got family in the medical field. I'm about to like, have you heard of this app? Like go check it out, go tell your hospital about it. If, if you're part of investment capital group and, and you want to, um, you know, you want to be part of, of, of rolling this thing out, I'm doing pitch decks every day to capital investors to try and get people on board so I can raise about $4 million so I can hire a team to push it out. I don't need to build it. It's already built. Yeah. The, the, the study is done. Like it's quantifiable. It works 100%. Like <laughs> it's, it's not hyperbole. It's not me just saying, oh, it works. No, I got medical data. It works, bro. And I just need money so I can hire people so they can go into the hospital systems and start rolling this thing out. Okay. So this is how I look at it. If, if I had ended my life early, I would have never raised two amazing kids that are now missionaries to Mexico. I would have never started this company where I get to employ over a hundred people in the Pacific Northwest. I got 110 employees who get to feed their families. I would have never married the love of my life. I would have never uh, won all these awards and helped all these veterans overcome trauma. I would have never become a published author. I would have never created this life-saving tool that is saving lives right now as we speak. I would have never done any of those things if I had ended my life early. And so I am trying to work as hard as I can, as fast as I can to get this tool in the hands of as many people as possible. And I just think like I, me and my team with this app, we, we may never change the world, but we might just save the life of somebody who will. Yeah. And so that's why I'm working so hard and I'm trying to find other like-minded people to join my team so we can get this thing out there and start saving lives. I mean, it's a pretty a, it's pretty noble what you're doing, like with everything going on. And then B, it's uh, already a pretty huge accomplishment and you're pushing for more. Yeah, I, I got a limited time on this earth, man. I'm going to try and help as many people <laughs> as I can for as long as I can till the Lord calls me home. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to say? You know, I just. If you've been listening to this uh, and you're you're one of those guys like me that's struggling with mental health, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to struggle. It's not okay to surrender. Like you can get up and you can yep. fight every single day. When I was in the Marine Corps, I became a close combat instructor. And part of your training was they put you in this pit. Okay. And you would jump in the pit and the instructor would already be in there and he'd be all geared up. And you'd have to put your gear on as he's looking over you. And then he would just pummel the crap out of you. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. 
but every day you had to fight and mm. you never got out of that pit without some bumps and bruises. And so if that's you today and you're dealing with those bumps and bruises, man, you just have to continue fighting. You know, some days you're going to win, some days you're going to lose, but every day you have to fight. You wake up, you put your boots on, they hit the ground and you're on the battlefield, the battlefield of the mind. The hardest one of them all. That's right. Man, guys, this has been Sergeant Q, Aaron Quinones. Um, hope I said your last name right. Yeah, you did uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I've served with a couple Quinoneses. They all kind of somewhat go. different names, but um, the awesome story. I mean, from a dude that served in the Marine Corps, be, was homeless and suicidal, almost you know, committed suicide to creating reliable commercial cleaning, uh, excuse me, coming up with, uh, operation pop smoke Q actual, where they actually did a, a 10 month study on the app and he had a hundred percent success rate. Um, he came out with a book healing through service book, um, as Sergeant Q. I mean, where do you want to start? You know, like looking into his story or whatever. Um, dude is awesome. I would actually encourage anybody listening to this. I'm probably about to go do it. Um, go to qactual.com and check out the app itself. Cause you never know who you can help out. And if you can use an app and kind of demonstrate it in front of your friends, or maybe, you know, you might go through something. Cause, um, I could tell you as base security, you never know when you're going to need something. You know, I always ran into people saying, I never thought this would happen to me. And it was always like a wreck, a, you know, like a, a fight, you know, a domestic, you know, something bizarre. Um, go, so go download the app. Cause you never know if you're going to need it down, you know, down the line in life, or if you can give somebody this app, uh, I'm about to go check out healing through service, but man, I appreciate you, uh, coming on for this interview. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. And so you guys, you can check out the app. You don't, you can download it. That's, that's totally fine. Oh, cool. But there's a, there's a demo that's getting put up, uh, this weekend. So, uh, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, people will be able to to go on the website and you'll be able to have a live demo to go through all the different features of the app and show people. Um, and then when you create this app or when you create your squad, you know, you're working as a team together so you can give support or get support uh, and help each other through this thing that we call life. <laughs> well, cool, man. That's awesome. Aaron, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on to project vetcast and, and tell everybody what you're doing, man. It's, it was really cool getting to meet somebody else that may not have a degree or may not even understand things at first, but who is willing to take the time and energy and invest in understanding the complicated freaking research that's done about, you know, our brain or about health or, or whatever. I mean, that's pretty intimidating in, in the first place, just to sit at a paper and stare at a foreign language and keep going until you understand what you're reading. Um, not only that, but you know, your app Q actual, the fact that you're able to have a hundred percent success rate and now you have hospitals and people calling you to get your idea into their workflow, their process, their system. Um, if there are any investors that listen to this, uh, you know, contact me. I'll get you Aaron's information. Um, but yeah, no, man, you killing it, man. Keep it up. All right. So 
hobbies. Let's go over a hobby. So let's see what weird and fascinating things I end up talking about. And I found a list. I'm not going to necessarily talk about where I found this list yet. Um, but some of these things actually made my eyebrow raise a little bit. And, and I'm not going to question it. I'm just going to go over it. But, uh, you know, like binge watching. Who knew binge watching was a hobby? You know, could you imagine on a business application or on a job application, you know, putting down when they say hobbies like binge watching. So, you know, the employer goes, uh, so uh, were you were you serious about the binge watching? Yeah, man. You know, th- it takes a lot of dedication and effort. You know, it's it, some sometimes you, you get to watch your favorite shows and then you, you run out of something to watch and you kind of got to pick something random. And it takes some, a lot of focus sometimes or, you know, like I I was able to to stare at the, the screen and figure out all the detail. And I found something that nobody else was able to see before, or <laughs> guys, I can't make this up. Um, I guess I'm going to put binge watching as a hobby now. Cause you know, sometimes I get carried away and do that. Uh, I did with, I'm done with space force. The uh, new season that's out. That was funny. Um, I'm about to start watching probably binge watching Yellowstone and then move on to 1883. But that's actually not the hobby I was going to talk about. <laughs> Um, the hobby I was going to talk about and something that I've done in the past was MMA. Uh, I saw on the list Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and it kind of got me thinking about when I was in high school, I used to do MMA. Um, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not like a, you know, if you were to, if we, if I was to fight somebody, I wouldn't be the freaking dude that scared the crap out of everybody in the ring at all. Um, I'd probably be the dude struggling to figure out what the hell I was doing now. But, uh, beyond that, Guys, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, um, and other martial arts are awesome to do. Uh, Muay Thai, for example, you know, it was really cool to learn about the band that Muay Thai schools use. So, like, I got my yellow band, meaning I know the basics, and that's about as far as I got. But, um, you know, to this day, I'm still able to practice basics, and I hope if I get into a fight, I at least remember those and can protect myself and kick somebody's butt if I have to. Outside of that, probably not going to happen. Um you know, you get your yellow band, you get the basics. And then after that, every school has their own different pattern of band, but the, the pain of kicking a wooden freaking beam or a metal beam, or, you know, trying to toughen your shins. I don't know if you guys have seen the videos on YouTube for, you know, for the guys cutting down or kicking down trees or, you know, just hitting the uh, boards. That actually scares me a little bit, but the discipline that it requires, the discipline it takes just to get good at Muay Thai or jujitsu, even jujitsu, if you don't know, is it was designed um, after one of the Gracies. And, you know, I used to know all about the history of jujitsu. It came from uh, Japanese judo. Uh, one of the Gracies was too frail, too small to do it. So he came up with his own version of doing Japanese judo um or jiu-jitsu and he came up and then there were brazilians so he came up with brazilian jiu-jitsu now since the guy who made it was smaller brazilian jiu-jitsu is designed for the smaller guy not like wrestling where you know the bigger the better you know you can slam people down you can pin people on the ground whatever um but brazilian jiu-jitsu is actually designed for people with the disadvantage to use the momentum and energy of their opponent um, like Eddie Bravo, for example, not the cartoon guys, but, uh, there's a jujitsu guy named Eddie Bravo who will smoke and then come up with these bizarre, uh, moves, these bizarre 
<clears throat> ways to get to different positions, these bizarre uh, positions to be in to tap somebody out. Um, it was really, you know, while I was doing jujitsu, it was really cool just to like study it and figure it out and just kind of figure out, you know, a black belt, for example, I was told only has about five things that they, you know, five moves in every position, the mount, the guard, the side mount, and the um, rear mount. Or rear guard. I'm forgetting positions now. I got to get back into jujitsu. Um, but yeah, you know, there are four or five basic positions you, you know, you get into, and there are so many ways to to move and mend the body or move or bend the body to get into those positions. And then um, it, you go in with a game plan and it gets broken, but it teaches you also about planning. So you have to learn discipline uh, in order to do it. You can't just be pissed off all the time and go in and, and get something done. I mean, you could, it, I guess it really depends on the gym, but uh, discipline is pretty big. Um, there's a lot of respect in Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. I mean, the people that talk trash lose it really quickly. Like they, they lose very fast. Um, but like, you know, the people that have a lot of respect for each other are usually really good at what, you know, at doing it. So, if my rambling has taught you nothing else uh, for the past five minutes, uh, hobby that we are talking about is not binge watching, even though I think I'm about to list that on a resume. Um, hobby was jujitsu, Muay Thai, and any other martial art you can think of. But martial arts is a good way to learn dedication or uh, excuse me, discipline and dedication, I guess, too. But discipline, it gets you fit because you exercise and you're, you know, learning how to do things. Um, but it's good for mental health because there's a sense of community in the gym you go to. So if nothing else, there are three positives to this hobby alone. Oh, and before I end this episode, I want to personally thank Jason McCormick and Jasmine Malaby for the reviews they left on the Project Vetcast page. Not only was it awesome to hear what you guys thought about Project Vetcast, um, I managed to realize how social media illiterate I, I really am. I learned more and more by the day, but, uh, a social media illiterate I was when here I am trying to grow a page. And when they posted their interviews, I grew by like a hundred followers, 80 to a hundred, something like that. And it, it, it blew my mind because I wasn't doing that by myself. Um, so I really appreciate the interview, uh, the, the reviews, excuse me, guys. Um, if you guys haven't reviewed me yet, please send me a review on uh, Facebook. You know, be honest, tell me what you think I'm doing great. Tell me what you think of the podcast. I really value honesty because it only teaches me how to grow and how to make the podcast better for you guys, for the veteran community. So that being said, uh, thanks again, guys. Guys, that's it for the 17th episode. Uh, probably my longest episode so far. Um, but if you guys ever need to talk or you have any questions at all, please feel free to email me at ian at projectvetcast.com or hit me up on Facebook. I'm happy to listen, bounce ideas back and forth, or help you figure things out. I'm a veteran, and if you're a veteran too, I'm your brother.